Guy is going to tell us a little bit about the current place he is right now. And this is called Florianapolis, uh, Brazil. And I had the, the opportunity to be there actually last year, not too long ago. It was almost a year exactly. Uh, I've been getting like the Google photo notifications now. I'm like, oh my goodness, I love that beach. I like this area. <laughs> like so many good memories of Florianapolis. But uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about where you're from? Great. So, Engi, I'm from south of Brazil. Florianópolis is an island. It's a city which is an, which is an island in south of Brazil. It's actually the smallest state capital in Brazil, but it's a state capital in the south of Brazil. So, we have like 42 different beaches. It's hot in here, probably 80 or even more. And... I'm in the office. I like my house, the office in my house. Uh, but maybe tomorrow I'll be at the beach. <laughs> One of the 42 that we have. Yeah, awesome. And I really, uh, like the island itself, it's actually pretty big when you compare it to some other ones. So I loved uh, visiting there. And yeah. Yeah, it's developed a very large tech ecosystem here in the south of Brazil, in Florianópolis. So we talk about yeah. half a million people living here. And tech is the, the biggest industry from town. Yeah. And how's that been growing like over the years too from the tech? Like what started that big growth of the tech scene in Florianopolis? So we have a, a very strong college university here that I think that kind of ignited some of the things. And some we have also, um, because of the, the environment, we have environment laws that uh, so they prohibit factories and stuff. So the entrepreneurs and people that were graduating on this university were building something and they, they found, found tech not to be a factory and they could build it here in the city. So this is one of the factors. But of course, that uh, once you get one, two big entrepreneurs with a success story, things start uh, like a flywheel and like spinning itself and it attracts more money, more people and have a, now a good ecosystem here in the South Brazil. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, really cool to see it uh, last year, and just like I was, I was pretty amazed, just like how many tech companies were in Florianopolis and the weather. I mean, that always bring me back. <laughs> it's fantastic, awesome. So now that we've heard a little bit more about Florianopolis, uh, I want to hear just a bit more about your background, Guy, and how you came to found RD Station and all the, the amazing things that you've been up to since then. Great. So I was born here. So I, I, I'm an engineer. I, I graduated on robotics and automation. And since the, the college, I started coding and I was a developer and I worked for different startups at the time here, like building apps before the iPhone, not the right timing, kind of failed on that. But we managed to attract a lot of attention from other states and other cities in Brazil. And, and we thought like, well, this marketing thing we are doing here is doing well. And we were working with content and email lists and lead management and sales funnel and all that stuff. And people were not, people were like just thinking about social media and virals and not really uh, transforming the, their digital assets into, into a sales machine. And so we decided to create a company focused on that. We always got some inspiration from HubSpot or even Marquito or Eloqua or other companies that are similar to us. 
but we created something really specific for SMBs in emerging markets in Brazil. So where we have 70% of market share here. Currently, our station has 25,000 paying customers and we have a, a very large audience here. For instance, our website attracts more than a million visitors a month. We hold a, an event last year for 15,000 people here in the South of Brazil. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's such a great event. We have lots of speakers from, from the US and from Canada as well. And of course, this year, it's everything online, unfortunately. But we are doing really well and about 40 to $50 million revenue on our path to an, an IPO, hopefully. Awesome. So this is the perfect moment to ask the question, G. Okay, you're doing all these amazing things. You're seeing a ton of growth and things are going well for RD Station. Why rock the boat? What was the main impetus behind going product-led for your business? Great. So we've always managed to grow with a sales-led approach. And actually, we became much more sales-led. Sales-led in terms of we always wanted to increase the lifetime value, reduce churn, so work with the ideal customer profile and all that stuff. And we started creating some barriers for those customers to come in, like lead qualification and one-year or multi-year contracts, implementation package, and all that stuff related to a more sales-led B2B sales process. And that kind of helped us, of course, to, to increase the, the lifetime value, the average ticket, and all of that. But it kind of slowed us, us down in terms of growth. We used to, mm-hmm. to, grow, to, to grow more than 100% and, now, and then it was about 60, 50. And we decided that we could add another layer of growth to all of that if we started or tried to, to change gears to a uh, product-led approach. Because all of those barriers that we were creating to try to prevent the bad fit customers to come in, we could actually try something different and offer them an entry-level version of our software where those guys would come in and come out, easy in, easy out, and that's a different business unit. And from that, we would get only the best ones to upgrade, to upsell to our premium solutions. And we would create a large pool of users that would be a new sales channel for the premium solutions. And of course, not only that, because we had some pressure from our competitors that we were already shifting to, to a more product-led approach. And, and even like smaller competitors trying to sell cheaper products, similar and cheaper. And then we thought like we have to, to launch like a live version or super cheap or free version of our software to prevent those smaller competitors to get those customers, those leads that we are blocking and try to sell them after they have proved some ROI with using the live version of our software and with that creating a new wave of growth for our company. So that was the rationale about this decision like two years ago. Okay. And so help me kind of write down here is just like the whole decision framework you had around making this decision. So can you kind of outline some of the like pros and cons of what you see around the sales that approach or just staying the current way? Because you mentioned one good pro here already, uh, which is a lot of people think as it relates to being sales, like, 
hey, we can just work with the best fit customers. And I think that's really convincing. Like we just want to create a product for the best fit customers. And that's why we would want to have friction. So can you just go through just what you believe even still now? Like what are some of the pros of sales led and the cons? And then we can see the next steps, just like do the same thing for product led and see what was the the tipping point for you. Yeah, I think this is exactly what we are trying to make. We are trying to maintain the two different systems working at the same time. So it's not that we, we don't have the sales-led anymore. We do have the sales-led approach for the premium version and the product-led approach for the entry-level versions of our software. And, and what are the pros on the sales-led approach? Well, when you were talking, we're trying to, to sell to a medium to large company with a complex structure and they have to commit to a project, actually, to some sort of change management in order to implement, to adapt your system, your software, it's better to talk to the decision makers to make sure that they will turn that in not only in a, in a software purchase, but also in a, in a project that will change process, that will make it happen. And on those cases, it's good for them to sign a contract to, to show their commitment to buy some professional service package to help them with that and all that stuff. So that's why we divide and there are two different business units. So the unit economics of these premium versions that we use the sales-led approach are super tight. Like we have super higher expectation with retention rates and lifetime value and increasing in the contract size and stuff. While on the other side of the product plan, easy is we don't even look at the, the churn rate anymore. It's more like a marketing approach. Come in, use it. If it's good, I'll try to upsell you to the premium version, but it's not. If you want to go away and come back later, that's fine too. So it's kind of getting this all this weight out of your backpack when you are trying to move forward and to grow your enterprise and while maintaining the margins and the, and the unit economics mm-hmm. because it's the right approach, the right sales process to the right kind of customers at the right time. Yeah. And Etienne had a really good question just around like, how do you deal with users uh, moving from one side to the other? So going from like that uh, free version to more of the, the premium version. And how do you make that transition as frictionless as possible? So before the, the, the light version of our software, we didn't have customers, didn't have the possibility to like sign it online like through a self-service buying process and we still haven't implemented that for the the premium version so they still have to talk to sales rep to sign the contract and stuff because as i said we went the commitment with the project not only the tool but usually it's fairly smooth actually it's much much uh, easier to sell to a customer that is already using the light version of our software and got interested in the premium version than trying to sell the premium version at first hand for someone that sometimes even doesn't know what what the tool is about so it's the conversion rate to give you some numbers the lead to close rate when they're not like free version or light version users is about 20% 20% from an open opportunity to close. When they are a light user, it's 40, 45%. So the sales team is twice as productive. 
the implementation projects are shorter and the implementation specialists and the customer success managers love that kind of customers because they have already set up most of those the things they needed to set up. They are tech savvy. They know how to use the tool while when they were uh, selling the premium versions directly. As I said, sometimes they didn't even know what they were buying and yeah. what configurations would need to, to put it in place and, and to run. So it's much, much smoother, much, uh, the conversion rates are much better. The engagement, the implementation goes faster. It's been really great, this, this transition from one product to the other. Awesome. And I want to hear just a bit more about the journey from sales that a product led as well. And really just if you could walk us through, what did that journey look like from that first moment where you decided, hey, we're going to go down this path and really, you know, do whatever it takes to to make it work. And I know uh, just from seeing you and connecting with you over the years too, like this has taken a while. And I think it was Ajinda Lee, like yesterday I asked everyone, like, what were your biggest takeaways? And this was like, I just realized it's going to take a really long time to make this transition. So I think maybe for others here too, you can map it out just like, here's the journey of what it took and how we were able to get some of those wins. So yeah, in particular order, if you just want to walk us through how you made this transition and what were some of the biggest hurdles you had to go through. Great. So it all started like 2018, I think, so about two and a half years ago. And we started with a prototype of this light version of our software. And we, at first, we didn't launch it at first. We actually were experimenting and trying to prove a hypothesis. And the hypothesis was that somebody would buy it, somebody would use it, and some user would upsell to the premium version. So we started with this in this stealth mode with this light version, and we used to offer it to those customers that were blocked in the first place. So they, they weren't able to buy because they didn't have the commitment, they didn't want to sign a multi-year contract or anything like that. So why don't you try this instead? And that was the first step. And of course, we wanted to know if from that user pool, we would manage to upsell part of them. And we kind of proved that, like uh, we were upselling about 5 to 10% of them. Once we proved it, we decided to, to really launch it, to unveil this strategy that was in stealth mode before, and to launch it publicly and place the light version of our software on the pricing page and all that stuff. And that was when the things got a little bit more difficult because everyone got nuts. They were mad at me because sales thought that it would prevent them to sell because everyone would only want the, the light version. The CS team thought that everybody would downsell to this light version and it was a hell. But it was really important that we have a strong support from our CEO. We had this early indications, this experimentation period that we ran. And so we could mobilize the whole company around it. And it was like a kind of a heavy project, not only because of the resistance, because it was a lot of work, like 
training the sales team so they could, they could understand the different layers, like revisiting uh, the whole packaging uh, strategy, pricing strategy, training the customer success team, changing the website, working with the engineering team to make sure that things will scale, all of that. Once it was done, we launched it, and it was a tremendous success. Like We went from zero to 12,000 customers in one year. That was the result, paying customers. And for the sake of comparison, the premium version of the software, we have also 12,000 customers, but it took us 10 years to get to 12,000 customers. And the light version got to 12,000 customers in just one year. And also after that, we had and still have a lot of resistance because it was not only about launching. We needed this, the marketing support so we could generate the number of signups that we needed. And we needed the sales team support so they could sell to the, those PQLs, those upsells that we are trying to, to give to them. And in the beginning, we had resistance. They didn't want to deal with this PQL thing. Marketing uh, didn't want to spare some resource to help us increasing the signups number. But we've managed to convince them with results. We managed to get just a few resources from them in the beginning, like a little of their commitment with the project. And then all of a sudden, the sudden they, they started to realize that leads were flowing in, lots of signups and sales started to realize that those PQLs were actually really good quality leads. And they started telling me, well, give me more of that. Do you have more of it? <laughs> <laughs> <They> got addicted. <laughs> yeah. They have, they have more of it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, the stage we are at uh, right now and still some challenges. Currently, the PLG already represents 15% of the total sales from the premium version. And I think that's like a new layer. It's not something like that. Uh, we kind of redirected the, the list. They would already have it. It's 15% more. And my goal is to flip and make the majority of the, the list that we close in the premium uh, the premium versions through the PLG, so at least to reach 50 or 60%. And I think we might reach that one or two years more. But of course, there are some challenges, especially with the marketing team, that we need to at least grow the signups three times, four times, I think, to really consider ourselves or our product-led growth company. We need a large uh, user base. Yeah. And can you touch a bit on just like the teams and how you've been working through this? Because I remember initially, like you were the head of customer success and then you decided like, let's go and focus full tilt on this new product led arm, the business. And you had like PLG team initially. And like, I want to just walk us through what that first team looked like and how it's transformed since then. Actually, it hasn't. No? I lost a lot of developers and my team is really small, but we can accomplish a lot with a small squad. <laughs> yeah. Well, so before that, I was leading the customer success team. So a much, much bigger team. We had like 150 people, 160 people working with customer success, support, and implementation. Then I moved to the product organization to lead this PLG initiative with a small squad with three developers, one designer, one PM two more analysts. And that's what we have so far until now. 
because what we do is to run lots of experiments. And I think it's good to be as bold and very productive. Everyone in the team is super senior. They understand the shortcuts inside the company. They are here for a long time and they are the best. Like I created the best thing that I could from the, the employees we had inside the company. So we, we can run lots and lot of, lots of experiments really fast, at least one or two every week. And we move things faster, but it's not only about us. Of course, we have to mobilize the marketing team, the sales team, the CS team, and everyone else. That's why I decided to lead this initiative because although it was a small team, it was really intensive in terms of negotiation and influentiating on other directors, other executives. And as a founder of the company, I, and actually a board member, I could use that to influence and to make the company move forward toward this, uh, this transition. And I know a lot of folks here have uh, been asking me around, <laughs> just like, how do you get this buy-in? How do you get more people on this PLG boat <laughs> train for the whole company? So wanted to share like some of the, the ways you were building influence to get more people thinking around how to, to think product-led and move in this direction. Great. So first, I'm a big believer of having strong storytelling behind the, the bold moves, the, the important projects. So we created in the narrative very strong, and we kind of teach and preached how the company could grow, how this is, was the trend. And that was one thing. The other one was having the CEO support, which is my partner. And I, we couldn't get any further without his help. At some point, you have to have someone telling people that they must do it. That's their job and their goal. Otherwise, the resistance, they will only get resistant and back off and, and try to postpone it. So CEO support and really vocal support was super important. And after that, I was kind of using my influence on uh, the different departments and different executives. Since I'm founder, I have, I'm here since day one, and I know every corner and every shortcut that I could take. And I mobilized the whole team, and, and I, I got a really strong person uh, with uh, project management skills to help me to organize those different working streams. And after that, that was the initial kick, let's say. And I got to get the ball rolling after that. Otherwise, I wouldn't get for the initial kick. The CEO was really important, the storytelling, project management skills. But if we're in for the results, we wouldn't move more forward. So later on, we started to delivering the PQLs for the sales team, the signups, which increased by three times or four times in one year, helped not only on selling the light version, but some of the signups, they tried the, the, the light version for just a few days and then they decided to buy the premium version directly. So the marketing team, the sales team loved it. So I think it, it's a like storytelling, CEO support, product management and results. Awesome. And one of the, the underlying themes that I know we were discussing before the call too is just around the theme of resistance. 
and like identifying resistance and also knowing how to combat that resistance. And you mentioned a couple of teams, like there was your CS team. They were really worried. Like if we have this free version, people are just going to downgrade and we're going to lose out on all that potential revenue. Uh, sales team is thinking, hey, this product is going to uh, sell, sell. Everyone's going to go on the light version. There's not going to be much premium options here. Uh, so that's a risk here. There's also cannibalizing sales, which you mentioned like, hey, you the product right now, the light version represents 50% of total sales, but like that's probably more of an additional 15% than just coming from whatever you were going to make in the premium version anyways. And so why don't you just take us through like some other areas of resistance that you encountered and how you really approached it? Wow, well, almost areas inside the company, like the, the billing system, the I don't know, the ERP, the everything has some resistance because it was extra work for everyone. But I think that the main blockers uh, were the uh, the business teams, the revenue teams, so the sales and, and customer success. And I worked in partnership uh, with a strong partner from the product uh, marketing team. Product, I don't know if you guys have product marketing inside the marketing organization, but we have a really good product marketing director and we work with him with a total review of our pricing and packaging strategy, which, by the way, is the key component for a POG strategy to work or, or to fail. And we talked to them. We talked to these the salespeople, what were their concerns, and with the customer success team. And we addressed that on this project. We divided the different features, different limits, uh, what they thought about it. We ran some surveys with the actual customers, asking them if they would downgrade for a version, if that version had this, this, and that, what would make them stay. We asked some deals in the pipeline if they would not uh, willing to uh, would close the deal if were a different package like that. So we kind of show them some leading indicators that the, their concerns, the, the, what they were afraid about, wasn't happening. So that was one part, of course, of working with this project with a strong support from the product marketing team. So when we launched, we also changed the whole uh, packaging price structure. And of course, after that, we needed to, to show the numbers. And between one and three months, to show them that we had zero X return and the sales team were hitting the, their quota anyway. So I think we, we were fine. Okay. And so it worked. What was the like biggest worries around that? Because I know like one of the modules for the program is all on monetization strategy because I see it again and again. I'm like, it's always a problem when going from sales to product-led. So how did you like go through and structure your pricing in a way that people could easily understand what plan would work best for them? How is that process? Well, um, uh, let me try to explain a bit more about our software so, so you can understand. So we have a marketing automation software. So it's uh, there are different features like uh, lead generation, landing page builder, pop-ups and stuff. We have email marketing campaigns. We have um, workflow automation, a lot of analytics, SEO tools and, and stuff. So we realized that 
the first thing they are looking at, at least the first thing that connects them with the, the premium version is the lead management. So to start to actually converting visitors into lead and using RD station as this contact base. So this, this was the core feature that we, we would launch on this light version. And we also realized that the good customers were the one that had lots of leads, lots of contacts. Mm-hmm. They were willing to pay more. So what we did was we decided to put automation, for instance, automation only on in the pro versions, in the premium versions. And of course, we, as I said, we ran some service to ask them about, about it because we knew that if they had just a few leads, they won't need the premium versions anyway. So why try to sell the premium version to someone that only have, I don't know, a couple of leads? They don't need all those features like lead scoring, automation, integration with different systems. So we got all of that on the premium version only. And we also worked on the, product limits so we limit the number of users trying to make like smaller customers small companies to be comfortable with the light version but not medium and large companies wouldn't be comfortable because they would need more seats or the contact base or those different features but i think it's an ongoing process we managed to make it right from the beginning it worked but i do understand that it could go wrong and i think that Lots of companies that are trying to make similar transition might make, make something that don't work at first. And we need to look at the, at the monetization strategy, the pricing packaging as also one source of experimentation. Right. I think it would be awesome to run like A-B tests with the, the, the pricing strategy. So don't think as something that you decide on and you engrave it on a stone and it will keep like that. I think we should revisit it at least at every six months. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's like, just like the whole product-led strategy in general and business in general, and not just specifically product-led. It's like, it's just an ongoing process. Always be innovating and improving. And then yeah, that's how it will work. So Gareth actually had a great question about beyond your influence, have you now been able to turn like the PLG functions and business as usual across all other functions I needed support? So for instance, how is marketing now prioritizing promoting the light version? And I would imagine like how is sales now prioritizing PQLs and all those other pieces? So how did you kind of operationalize and get more teams bought into um, thinking product-led and supporting these bigger initiatives? Well, usually it goes down to the budgeting process. When I really want to, to make sure that I will commit certain amount of resources on the initiative. And we did that on the last year. And we are currently discussing the, the budget for, uh, 2021. And as I said, as we managed to show some, some initial results and, and they are all excited about that. I'm really excited about next year because this year we worked with the marketing team, like with a small team from them working with us, like three or four people that were working alongside with our team, like part-time job only. Mm-hmm. And they didn't see the sign-up metric as a key metric on their goal. On, on, it wasn't even tied to their bonuses or things like that. And I'm really excited about next year because it didn't come from me. 
like the marketing uh, director, the VP of marketing, decided that the their north star metric for their whole department, which is a hundred people department, should be synapse. That's mm-hmm. really good. So now I have virtually all of their resources working <laughs> to, <laughs> to increase synapse. But of course, we had to show them that it was a really good source of leads. And they had uh, have a better conversion rate to sales, not only to the light version, but to the premium version also. But it was a small step. So the first step was to creating this small experimentation team, this small squad working with my team. And then we started to build on from that. Mm-hmm. And while from the, the sales side, actually, I don't need to negotiate resources from them. Once they understood that they needed to work with the PQLs and they created a process to work with that. It's actually the opposite. The more PQLs they deliver, the less resource they need because they, they get more productive. And so the, the struggle and where I really need resource are, is in, on the marketing team. The more resource the marketing team put them to work on the POG strategy and the more results we, we deliver, the less resource we need on the sales team. So it's not really negotiation about resource with the sales team anymore. It used to be in the beginning, but mm-hmm. once they created the resource, the playbook, the training, it was all set up and it was fine. And how has that sales approach changed? Because I know last year when I was at the company, like you had broken it down into low touch and then high touch sales teams. Um, and that was something relatively new that you were introducing at that point. So I want to walk us through just like how you approached that initially and what was kind of the main reasons behind having a low touch and high touch sales teams? Well, actually, it's not really a low touch and high touch. We decided that we we wouldn't have SDRs, like pre-sales for the PQLs, because we decided the conversion rate was strong enough for not having this step. And also that the sales team, we worked with many more open opportunities when working with PQLs. So we actually, they would need to close the deal in, in a shorter time, amount of time. So that's not necessarily low touch by intention, but because of the productivity. And we started with only one rep. Like we got the best, I, I said, we just need one rep to start, one sales rep, but give me the best one. And it was kind of a, a fight, a struggle, because of course, no one's going to spare the best sales rep you have. But we, uh, we managed to solve that. And quickly, that sales rep was selling to tons of PQLs. And that sales rep helped to kind of train the other ones. Mm-hmm. Of course, we kind of documented everything and created a process and uploaded it and, and set it up on the Salesforce. And then we have the enablement team that keeps constant training for the sales team. And now we have all of that, but we started with only one one half, then two, then three, then the enablement team, then the process, then the sales force. And now we have the, the whole thing. I love the structure of that too. Just writing it down, like really getting that best sales rep, have them figure out how to sell the PQLs uh, since they've already shown like really good progress towards selling into other existing accounts. And then... Yeah, have them train everyone else and yeah, build that playbook as you go. And that's like quite literally just the same approach of building the airplane as you're flying, <laughs> like figure it out as you go. 
And that playbook should always be evolving and changing as you go forward with it. But no, that's super fascinating. And was there any other kind of stories around that process as it relates to support or marketing or any other teams where you just went into those teams, tried to find some people to really test this out, whether it's a PQL or something new to get their buy-in and prove out their approach to see those results very quickly. Yeah, on from the marketing side, as I said, this squad that started working with us was similar. Actually, the marketing team always wanted to have a growth hacking squad. And they had, they named it growth hacking, but it wasn't really growth hacking. And what I told the VP of marketing is, I'm going to turn this into a really growth hacking team. It's a real, real growth hacking team. So just make them work with me and I'll give them the framework and I'll give them developers and designers and they will have the methodology. And of course, the squad itself, the people working on from the squad were really excited because they were called growth hacking, but we're really working relentless and trying to reach the leads goal and short cycles of releasing more content and stuff just to hit the leads quota. And we actually did that. We delivered a lot of, a lot of good tools and methodology from, from the product team. They didn't work with A-B tests properly or statistical approach for the experimentation to this cycle where we could deliver one new experiment every week to with experiments that we weren't really interested in in hitting the the month goal. We were interested in improving something from the, the final. And so that was the, the first thing, the first way we could turn them to our side. And we actually give them lots of tools and methodology and guidance and leadership to turn what they had, what they called the growth hacking team into a real growth hacking team. And those were the guys that helped us to deliver the very first results. Yeah. And then we went for the demand generation team, the content, SEO, ads, all other channels. Because we proved that the sign-up were not only about selling the live version, but sometimes we would sell the premium version directly. And sometimes we would turn the, the live version to a PQL very quickly. Then we, we started getting attention from all other teams, especially the demand generation team. And so that, that was the first part. From the customer success team, we having to shift some resources because we don't offer customer success managers to the live customers. But we do have to work with the support team. Mm-hmm. And it was basically a mess. Like, okay, I need budget. I need more agents to support the extra support that we'll have with those entry-level customers. And we did the math. And the person running the support can hire a new agent every X new users we put in. So Hmm. it was basically that. They they were already trained. It was the same software. It was uh, actually a, a simpler version of our software. They knew how to answer the questions. It was uh, actually the, the light version user is, is quite, it's a, they have more simple questions. It's easier to work with them on the support. And, and so, and if they were coming in and we, we were giving them the budget to hire new agents. Okay. And did like anything else change for support, like in terms of how they were servicing people or anything, or was it pretty much the same 
support team that just used their same approach to how they're helping them initially? Or was there anything scaled down? We had to scale down. At uh, the beginning, it was all the same. So we had all the channels like mail, tickets, chat, and phone. And we have to turn off phone and chat for the light customers. Okay. Right now, we have only the support through email, but we do want to reopen the chat channel for the light customers, at least in their first month. Mm-hmm. Because in their first month is where they have most questions and is where they decided to stay or not. Right. So it would be really good if we could help a little bit more, at least in the first month. So we, we are playing that for, for next year. But we had to scale that. We had to shut off those two channels because it was getting too expensive to yeah. support those customers. You went from zero to 12,000 in one year. Like that's yeah, exactly the support team. You're like, oh, what's a lot of fun costs. Like, a lot of fun costs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a ton. Interesting. And so, Alan had a good question around like, is the upgrade from basic to premium or I guess light to premium in your case all product led or is there like some sort of manual onboarding where people have to talk to sales to the upgrade? They have to talk to sales to upgrade to the premium version. As I said, We still want the customer really, really committed to the project when they go to the premium version, not to try the tool and see if it works. We want the committed to to creating the lead scoring criteria, to setting up the workflows. And sometimes it's, it's a lot of work to set up the whole workflows they need and to connect the different apps and to integrate. That can't be a test. So that's why they have to talk to sales. They have to sign a, an year contract and they have to pay for implementation. So we know they are real. They are tight. They're really committed to the plan. Yeah. Uh, we, we do want to run some tasks to make it them to buy it online and self-service to upgrade online. But we will run it as a task because in the past we had lots of trouble with customers not really committing to to the project and just checking it out. And we don't want that on the premium version. Interesting. And I forget if it was in Brazil or if it was uh, another country or a country I was talking to for this part, but is it a problem you've noticed in Brazil where people aren't uh, necessarily as comfortable as some other countries paying with a credit card online? Is that also part of it? Yeah, it is. It is. So we decided to only give them the credit card option for the light version. We have some the payment uh, method here in Brazil called Boleto, mm-hmm. which is kind of a wiring transfer, but they can do that monthly. So they receive like QR code to pay for the bill. And the problem is when you set it up in, in the credit card, it's much easier. Yeah. But when you have to, every month, to take a photo of a QR code and decide, hmm, do I really want to pay this? <laughs> <laughs> so at first, we decided not to offer this payment method to the light version. So they only have a credit card, which is a problem because sometimes the really small companies don't have credit card. Mm-hmm. But it's also more related to the customers that weren't were going anywhere, weren't growing the software any, anyway. So... We decided to only offer credit card to make things simple, simpler. Got it. 
Awesome. And um, immediately was just wondering, like, how did you go about driving that 12,000 accounts to the platform? Like, that's massive for one year. I love to hear just like what went into that. What did you notice there was like any virality that like helped out with that? Or was it just pure like word of mouth that was like driving the majority of that? Yeah, I think we already have a large audience on our website. So as I said, we attract more than a million visitors a month. And lots of those were maybe interested in trying out our software or trying out what we had to sell. But they were not really interested in talking to a sales rep and signing a contract and implementation project and all that. And so they, they are just trying out. And guess what? Once they try it out, they decided to write a premium version as well. So, so it's not that we created the audience. We already had it, but we weren't making the best use of it. And now we have an offer to those that are not ready to sign a multi-year contract, but they are ready to pay 10 bucks to use our software in the beginning. So that's it. Like, I, I know that it's not that all other companies trying to make that transition have this big audience, but in our case, we had. We are a marketing company after all, and we do uh, a lot of education and create content and have this massive event here in the South of Brazil. And, and although we weren't really extracting uh, the best from it. Awesome. And I guess for anyone else, if you have any other questions about IG, went from sales ads, product led, uh, feel free to add it to the chat. But um, the last question I had on my list was really just if you were to go and go back in time two and a half years later, what would you do differently as it relates to this whole transition? I would make it faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Not kidding. It would make it faster. A lot of people were afraid of a lot of things that didn't make sense. And it took us time to prove, to be cautious with every different executive concern. So I would make it faster. Okay. And how would you approach that to make it actually faster? <laughs> Easier said than done, but I wouldn't make so many tests to prove that every little concern from every different director would be addressed. Mm -hmm. I would kind of use the, the Facebook model in the early days. I don't know if you know, the, the, there is the story that the Facebook model was move fast and break things. Yeah. And then once at a time, Facebook was really unstable and, and Zach changed it to move fast with scalable infrastructure. <laughs> but nobody, nobody even remembered that anymore because it, it didn't catch. So I would move fast and break things. Yeah, I think we pass and break things, and then when things get unstable, <laughs> move to that second. <laughs> yeah. That's a good motto. Move fast with scalable infrastructure is not a good motto. Yeah, it doesn't quite <laughs> stick. Awesome. Uh, Gareth had a good question around like, what was the biggest difficulty in getting the light version to launch with confidence, and how did you address it? Ooh, the biggest difficult. It was the, the making all the different work streams to move together and, and align. Because as I said, for the launch date, we needed the sales uh, team trained, the CS team trained, pricing page ready to, mm -hmm. to go on our the billing system ready to charge the customers. And the most difficult part was this, it's a project management 
of working together with several at the time. We had like nine different work streams with different teams. And I was trying to juggle with all that and, and making everyone to move at the same pace. So I can't say that one work stream was harder than another or more difficult, but I can say that making those nine work streams to move together was the most difficult task. Awesome. And I guess where can more people learn about you and what you're up to? I have to say that I'm a big fan of not having like social media. So <laughs> I'm not really active on social media. And I read that book about, uh, I forgot the name, but it's someone that tells it you, you shouldn't have social media, but I do have LinkedIn and I, I use, I, <laughs> I look at it once uh, in a week. And of course, my company, hardystation.com, we have lots of content. And if you want to email me, it's guilopez at rdstation.com or just send me a message on LinkedIn. Awesome. Yeah, I've shared your LinkedIn in the, the chat below. But yeah, just wanted to really say thank you so much for going through this and sharing how you're going through this transition. Because it's so interesting just seeing like two and a half years later, who would have thought you would have got here? And just the, the big thing that stuck out to me is like that 12,000 number, like it took 10 years to get there as a sales ad company. But long and behold, like one year later, you were able to do the same thing on the product led side of things. And that's just mind boggling to kind of think about the scale of that too. And what the next couple of years will look like as you really build that up. So I'm rooting for you. And I really hope to see this. You get to, you know, 24,000 and 100,000 one day as you Me do too. transition. Me too. The same here. I hope I have news and new challenge to talk about next year. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for joining. This has been an absolute pleasure. And you know where to connect with Guy. And I hope everyone has an amazing day. Bye.